one of my favorite stories is the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. And there's a scene in that writing and in the movie as well when they're wondering whether what they're doing is worth it. Sam and Frodo, who are carrying this ring to be destroyed, the centerpiece of the entire story, are just sitting there talking about all that they've been through and wondering whether it's worth it or not. Frodo, who is the main character given the task of bearing this burden, says to his best friend Sam, I just can't do it. The look on his face in the movie and the feeling you get from the reading is just of someone that's been beaten and and hurt and that life has just taken him in directions he never expected and he is just tired of everything. And basically he says, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I'm giving up now. His friend looks at him and says, I know, I know. It's all wrong by rights. We shouldn't be here, but we are. And then he says this. He says, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really matter. They were full of darkness and danger, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But when you get to the end, it's a passing thing, a shadow. Even the darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if you were too small to understand. I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't, because there was something worth holding on to. Frodo defeatedly looks at him and says, And Sam, what exactly are we holding on to? Sam says that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it is worth fighting for. We find ourselves in the third week of discussing spiritual warfare in the midst of a battle that we may not have chosen or wanted, but we're here. And the truth is that as he talks about that the great stories have these moments of darkness and dread when you don't know how it could end well. So it is with the story, the greatest story. And that in our lives there are difficult, dark times. And in the midst of those times, we, as the people of God, must be willing to step forward and stand firm where we are. Now, sometimes that requires those defensive weapons that we talked about last week, the the belt that prepares us, the breastplate that protects us, and the shoes that prepare us to stand. But sometimes the weapons that are required are more violent in nature, more sturdy in nature. This morning we're going to talk about three more weapons that the Lord has given us and equipped us with. And the question is, are we prepared in our lives to use them? I ran across this quote this week from Eugene Peterson, who is the the man behind the message paraphrase of the Bible. And he talks about us as Christians. And he says that, you know, sometimes we seem like the world really doesn't like us, but the truth is everybody usually treats us pretty nicely. I was thinking this week about Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner, the... Quarterback led the Cardinals to the Super Bowl last year. 
one of, you know, a lot of debate right now whether he's a Hall of Fame quarterback or not, but one of the things that's for sure is he always stood for his faith. And one of the things that was interesting is this week as he was going out, nobody got on to him about his faith. They all talked about how good of a guy he was. They were so kind to him. And this is what Eugene Peterson says, which is interesting. I'm not saying this about Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner's a great guy. He says, no one seems to think that we mean what we say. When we say kingdom of God, nobody gets apprehensive. As we just announced that a powerful army is poised on the border ready to invade. When we say radical things like Christ and love and believe and peace and sin, words that in other times and cultures excited martyrdoms, the sounds enter the stream of conversation with no more splash than baseball scores or gas prices. He goes on to say, perhaps many of us are living as prisoners of war in enemy land. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us that we are in a battle with the unseen world that is fierce and intense and that our enemy is somebody to be respected but not feared. And as we talked about last week, that we are to equip ourselves with a belt that is dipped in God's truth, that is understanding of who He is, that we are then to have the breastplate of righteousness that God has put into our lives and that we are living on a daily basis in order to give protection to us. And that we are to have the gospel always ready so that we're able to stand firm. Verse 16 tells us this. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we're just going to look at those two verses today, 16 and 17, and next week we're going to finish up this passage of Scripture. But this morning I want us to notice three more um, weapons that we have been given that we need to use. And the first one is this. We need to learn to use our fire extinguisher. Now, I know that you say, I don't see a fire extinguisher anywhere in there, right? Well, it does tell us to use our shield of faith. Now, in Roman times, there were two kinds of shields. There was the circular shield that you held. You know, that, that you know Luke has gotten into a big thing. We, for Christmas, got them Nerf swords. Well, Luke can't just walk around the house with just a sword. He's got to have a shield. And so whatever he finds that's circular in nature becomes his shield. We have found him carrying pot, uh, the tops of pots around as shields. The other day he found something new. Madeline has a nice little clothes hamper for her. The top of that's in a circle. He's carrying it around. But he's carrying his sword and his shield. Well, that was one type of shield. That's not the type that's described here. The type of shield that's described here is a large shield, four and a half feet tall, a couple of feet wide. And the idea was that there was a shield that when the enemy was attacking, that you could literally crouch behind. It was kind of rectangular in shape, and that they would have put together on the front of a line of the Roman guard, they would have put together several shields in a row to kind of form a barrier. One of the things that I... Uh, could compare it to is almost like, and it would be more ornate than this, but like a, a, a tackling dummy in football. You've seen those, right? 
And they would be able to get behind those and move forward little bit by little bit. In the movie Gladiator, they show a little bit of that, this idea that you would get behind it, you would move forward, and you would just continually move towards the enemy. Well, the reason they used those shields was that one of the most dangerous weapons of the enemy in those days were flaming arrows. And what would happen is the enemy would put some uh, stuff on the end of the arrow, they would light the arrows, and then they would shoot them into their opponent. Now, what happened is that if the arrow went into you and it's on fire, what are you going to do? You're going to burn, yeah, but what are you going to do if you're yourself? You're going to try to put it out, right? And you're going to try to get the arrow out of you, right? The thing is you want it out. And so when they made the arrow so that if you removed the arrow, it would take more flesh with it than when it went in. And so these shields were very important. They put on the outside of these shields, this is kind of interesting, they would put some stuff over the outside, some pitch and some other things, so that when the arrows hit the shield, they would immediately extinguish. Now, why does that all matter here? Because it tells us here, doesn't it, that we are to use our shield of faith with which we can what? Extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Paul is giving them a very vivid picture of what it was like to be in battle in that day and saying that your enemy is coming. Now, here's the thing. This relates a little bit to the belt of truth, but it tells us that we are to extinguish the flaming arrows. If we need faith to extinguish the flaming arrows, then what is it that Satan is going to come after us with? Doubt, deception, condemnation, hate. Lust, emotion. The question is, how do we battle that? The idea here of the faith that is discussed is simply absolute confidence. Absolute confidence. Four things that we must have absolute confidence in as we move forward because our enemy will do everything he can to dissuade us from our path. The first thing is we have to have absolute confidence in God. In who he is. As a staff, um, last fall we read a book called Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And I highly recommend that book. It's, it's deep. And so if you would like something a little lighter, there's a great book out by a guy named Chip Ingram called Seeing God with 2020 Vision. Or I think it's, it's right, it's, that title's close. And the idea is to understand who God is and to have complete confidence in him. Last Sunday night, we had an interesting discussion about some matters related to spiritual warfare. And I said that one of the ways that Satan often attacks is that he tries to get the culture around us to distort our view of who God is, of who Jesus is. And I made this statement. I said, I don't know that there has ever been a generation that has had more different views of who Jesus is than ours. I said... And I say this, tonight is the Grammy Awards, all right? Some of you in this room could care less. Some of you are excited about it, all right? You turn on the Grammy Awards tonight, I can almost guarantee that this scene is going to happen. Somebody is going to win an award, all right? They don't say anymore they win the award. I guess the Grammy will go to somebody. And they will get up on stage, and the first thing they will say is, I just want to give praise to God. 
And if you go out and you buy the record, it's going to have one of those little explicit lyric stickers on it. And you're going to listen to it and think, how in the world could this person ever be praising God? It just doesn't match. But if you talk to them, they love Jesus. They grew up in church. I love Jesus. I love him. I love who he is. But it's a different view of who God and Jesus is than what Scripture says. We've got to have confidence in who God is, the holy God of Scripture. Here's what else. Not only do you have to have confidence in who God is, you have to have confidence in His promises for you. Promises are throughout Scripture. The promises that He will never leave us nor forsake us. The promises that He'll give us power when we need it. The promise that He's coming back again to get us. The promise that He will not give us anything, that He won't give us a way out. Promises throughout Scripture. We have to fend off the flaming arrows of the enemy with an understanding and absolute confidence in God and His promises, but not only that, also in His power. Just the sheer power of who God is and what He does. And the last thing is we have to have absolute confidence in His program. Uh, my favorite definition of faith is by a guy named Philip Yancey, and he says that faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. The idea that we can believe in advance what only makes sense when we get on the other side of it. And that's the way it is with God's program for your life. One of the things that I love about what we're doing on Wednesday nights and that we're reading through the Bible together is that we're being able to see that God's plan continues to move forward when human beings try their best to mess it up. On Wednesday night, our discussions a lot have uh, revolved around, many of you are involved in that, have revolved around the fact that these are bad people. If you read the book of Genesis and you read it honestly, the people in Genesis are bad people. And yet when you get through it, they announce in the later, later in the Old Testament and even the New Testament that we're serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men that lied about who their wives were. Men that uh, had their families put out to pasture. Men that, that did deceptive things. Men that did things that if you did them today, they would get you on the news and they would put you in jail. And here's the point of all that. Those acts weren't any better back then than they are now. But God's plan is going to move forward. He's going to do what He's going to do. Now, He wants you to be a part of that. And he's got a plan for your life that doesn't make a bit of sense right now at all. But part of the faith is trusting him. Satan's going to come at you with flaming arrows to get you to discredit what we understand about God, to discredit what his promises are to us, to discredit his power, and to discredit what he's doing in your life. In fact, one of the biggest moments of spiritual warfare in your life is when God really begins to do some work in your heart and your mind and changing how you behave. Suddenly those doubts will start to creep in. God, God wouldn't want to use somebody like me. Now, now, I don't think there's any way that I could actually do that, God. I, I, you know, I, I, I trust you, but, but that's asking a lot. It's in those moments that we need to trust in who God is and what He desires for us. First thing we've got to do this morning is we've got to use our fire extinguisher. The second thing is... We've got to protect our mind. I mean, this sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? 
Take the helmet of salvation. Now, where do you wear a helmet? On your head. Good, you're awake. That's good. All right. You wear a helmet on your head. Are helmets important in battle? Yes. Uh, I was um, watching some of the some football practice this week, and there was a time when they weren't wearing helmets. They're just running around on the field. And this is what you know: if you watch a football practice and they're not wearing helmets, they're not really playing football, right? There's not going to be any tackling. There's not going to be any real hitting. It's just going to be walking around, running around, because you've got to wear helmets. The reason you wear helmets is one of the most important things to protect is your brain. Well, the truth is, most spiritual warfare occurs in your mind. And the easiest thing to say is, well, of course this means we've got to put on the helmet of salvation. And so that means that the helmet of salvation puts on our head. We know in the Baptist life we believe and believe Scripture teaches that once you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, once saved, always saved, right? That once you've accepted Christ, you can never be plucked out of the Father's hand. I believe every bit of that. I think that is in mind here, but in a different way. It doesn't just mean just make sure you got salvation, make sure you got your fire insurance, put on your helmet, and everything's okay. That's not what it means. It means that in light of your current circumstances, live as if you know your future is secure. Live as if you know your future is secure. That it doesn't matter what happens in your life. Everything's going to be all right. Part of the real difficulty when it comes to spiritual warfare is that our mind is inundated with different ideas about who God is, about what our lives are about. And we have to constantly remember that God will take care of us. First Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Corinthians 10 says this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of this world. This is talking again about a spiritual conflict in another place. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. These are the strongholds you demolish. Verse 5 of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is the reason that when we talk to youth so many times, we talk about your thought life. The problem is sometimes when people turn 18, we think they don't struggle with that anymore. So we stop talking about people's thought life. The truth is from now until the day you die, you will battle with your thought life. With the things that attempt to get in there, with the untruths that attempt to filter into your mind. And it says in Scripture here that our protection against things coming into our mind is the knowledge of the salvation that we have in Jesus. Philippians 4.13 is a pretty popular passage of Scripture. Anybody quote it for me? Philippians 4.13. I can do through Christ who strengthens me, right? Now, I've told you this before. The truth is that verse is not meant to be for sports teams that think they can go out and beat anybody because of Christ who strengthens them, all right? It's not to be something that pumps you up before you leave the door that morning. That the verse there means Paul is saying, I can live in any circumstance because of what Jesus has done in my life. I was listening to a pastor this week that was talking about a time that that Satan really attacked him in his thought life. 
And it just, he said, I was sitting at my desk one day. He said, I was minding my old business. I had my Bible open. I was preparing to study for the, the sermon that coming week. He said, all of a sudden, the thought came into my mind. What would happen if you lost your ministry? I, well, I don't, I don't know. What, what would happen if somebody took this away from me? What, what would I do? Well, you know, what, would, what would happen if, 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 you, if you lost your house? What, like, I don't know. And he said, in the midst of it, I realized that it was something not from God, that this was something from the enemy. So I just stopped and I said, Lord, you've got to help me here. And God didn't answer the way he thought he would. He didn't say, oh, it's all right, everything's good with your ministry. He said, what if you lost your ministry? What if you lost your home, your car, your wife, your kids? So what? What if you lost it all? And he said in the midst of that time between the discussion between him and the Lord, he said the Lord just kind of said, would you state Philippians 4.13 even if you lost it all? The question that he said that came down to was, even if the worst imaginable things in my life happened, I've still got Him. And that's all that matters. Now, that's easy to say, isn't it? That's easy. It's hard to live. It's hard to live. But the truth is, when we have our helmet of salvation fastened around us, what we know is, no matter what may come in my life, I am guaranteed of an eternity with Him. And because of that eternity with Him, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You've got to learn to protect your mind. A few weeks ago, or a few days ago, I reread with my boys the story of David and Goliath. Somebody has said that Goliath is the ultimate example of a guy that should have known better than to not wear his helmet in the battle. Now, the truth is, we don't know if he wore his helmet in the battle. What we do know is if he did, he didn't have it on, right? Because where did David hit him? Right between the eyes, right? And you just think about David and Goliath's story. And one of the things I love about David and Goliath's story is we tell that story to kids, but we leave the ending off, right? Right? We hit him with the stone. We take it. We swirl it around. By the way, it wasn't a little pebble. You know, sometimes you think about that. They had some of these at Southwestern. I was in school. They had pictures of the stones he would have got from the river, and they were about this big. So, I mean, it wasn't a, wasn't a little pebble David hit him. It was a stone, all right? He hit him. But what's the end of that story, right? David jumps on top of him. What does he do? Chops off his head. Then what? Picks it up and shows it to the other side. Boy, that's, we don't put that in our Sunday school curriculum. If y'all got, Landry, do y'all put that in the life? I'm on you today, Landry. Do y'all put that in the Lifeway? You had anybody commissioned to paint that picture for us? We might get that painted and decorate our halls with that, all right? I'd love to see a church do some of the more graphic pictures in Scripture, that being one of them. But the point is... <laughs> That was kind of a tangent there, I know. The point of that is, Goliath lost a battle where his helmet wasn't properly worn. Well, he didn't think there was any need to. He got a little cocky about it. It's a little runt out there. The truth is, Scripture says that we need to protect our mind. It tells us that the way to do that is to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's only one way to renew your mind, and that's to take away the bad stuff and fill it with good. 
You can't just renew your mind by taking stuff away. You've got to replace it. This is true of anything in your life. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about idols in our culture and in our lives. And one of the things the Israelites had to learn, and one of the things that you have to learn in your life is, whenever God calls you to give up something, you've got to replace it with something godly, or you'll fill that void with something else. You've got to renew your mind. Here's the last thing. We've got to learn to use our weapon. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. I was at a football game recently and walking along by the edge of the fence between the, the spectators and the field was a guy in full um, uniform, a cop. And I was thinking as he was walking back and forth how impressive he looked in his full uniform. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's an intimidating thing. When you get pulled over, part of what, uh, for those of you that get pulled over, you know, I'm not saying everybody gets pulled over, but if you've ever been pulled over, uh, what makes it intimidating is when you're sitting in the car and you look in that rearview mirror, and if I stepped out dressed in a T-shirt, in jeans, you go, oh, no big deal. But when the cop steps out in his full uniform, it's intimidating, right? Right? But here's the thing. I was watching him as he was walking back and forth, and as impressive as it was for him in that full uniform, he made one particular turn, and as he turned on his side, I noticed a gun. And as he turned, I saw the gun, and I thought, now that's the enforcer. I mean, the uniform's impressive, but the uniform ain't going to do anything. But you go at him the wrong way, the enforcer comes out. The sword for the Roman soldier was the enforcer. Now, when we say swords, a lot of times we think of the swords, even in that video, samurai-like swords, long swords. That's not what the Romans had. They had short swords. And the reason they had short swords were they had a shield. They had things to keep people away. So when people got close enough to them that you didn't need something long, they needed something short that they could jab real quickly. And when people got close enough to them, when the other defenses had failed, the one defense that was still there was the sword. Now, I've heard people talk about the only offensive weapon in all of this spiritual warfare is the sword. And while that's kind of true, they still used it more for defense than for out open battle. And it was the thing that they tried to keep people as far away as they could, but when they got close enough, they had to use the enforcer. Here's the thing. The whole purpose of that uniform that we talked about, of those steps of truth and righteousness and getting the flaming arrows out is to keep the enemy as far away as possible. But there are times when the enemy gets close. And when the enemy gets close, it's time to bring out the enforcer. Now, what is that? What well, tells us here, doesn't it? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, that's a little misleading for us in one way. You see, usually when they're talking about the full Word of God, the full understanding of God, the Bible, you, if you will, there are certain words they use. Uh, in one place they, use, they will use logos. In one place they will use a word called graphe that we get like graphite from. But that's not the word used here. They'll even talk about Scripture using a different Greek word. That's 
not the word used here. The word used here is a short little word. And I know you didn't come for a Greek lesson. That's rhema. And rhema means a specific spoken part of God's word. Here's what I think about. I mentioned it last week and you just think about this throughout. I think of the temptation of Christ in the Gospels. Now, let me just give you this. At that moment, Satan had gotten close to Jesus. Other defenses had not protected him from that moment. And when Satan comes at Jesus, what does he use? The Word of God. But he doesn't start in Genesis 1-1 and start quoting him the entire Bible. He uses specific words that he knows. Here's what I think is meant by this. I really hadn't seen this in a lot of places, but I think biblically it fits. I think what is here is that when the enemy gets close and you are in the intense battle, the last line of defense is the part of God's Word that you need at that moment. The one that you need right then and right there. Here's the idea. There are parts of God's Word that are good for certain moments, right? And you've got to be able to use them when they come. Now, here's the kind of caveat there. You've got to know God's Word to know what parts to use. Jesus didn't just memorize three verses out of Deuteronomy and think, Ooh, I hope they fit here. Right? You can't just pick and choose, Well, I know John 3.16 and Philippians 4.13, and I know Genesis 1.1. I know those... And I hope they fit every situation I'm in. You've got to even know the full counsel of God. That doesn't mean you have to memorize it. But here's the amazing thing. Even scriptures that I don't have memorized, it's amazing that in moments of temptation and difficulty, what God will bring to mind from what I've studied. Part of the reason I'm so excited about reading through the scriptures together in a year with you as a congregation is because when we get done with this year, if we follow the plan, we're going to have read everything that we will ever need to use in cases of spiritual warfare. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to have them ready accessible. You can't read it through once and go, I'm done. It's not like you downloaded it, all right, and you can search it. But it's important that we use the right word at the right time. And so when you're in the midst of battle and it begins to twirl in your head what's going on, what's going on, you just pray, Lord, give me the word for this moment. And just like Jesus in the wilderness, they'll come. I'm going to tell you this. If I were to choose where the word to fight off Satan would come from, most of the time I wouldn't choose Deuteronomy. But Jesus uses Deuteronomy three times. Now here's part of the reason that may have been the case. Maybe that's what his devotional was on that month. I don't know. I don't know why they were at his mind, but they were the appropriate words at that moment. And whatever it is, God will allow you to have it right then and right there. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what difficulties might be there. I don't know what doubts have crept in. I don't know what um, what situations you're in that you're wondering whether or not you'll be able to, to make it through. But I know this, that when you trust the Lord, when you clothe yourselves in all that He has already given us in salvation, then you can make it through whatever comes your way.